Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Terror Talk. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Terror Talk. This is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Hi. Yay. So today we're going to talk about cult leadership guru status. We originally thought about talking about this topic because we were watching uh, Wild Wild Country and, on Netflix mm-hmm. and the Bikram document, documentary on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And I had actually listened to the 30 for 30 podcast and I they did about five or six episodes on the Bikram story. Mm. And I, I had originally found that really fascinating. And then, you know, on from there. Yeah. So I know I have some stuff to offer about the psychology of cults and how, um, why cults are attractive to people mm-hmm. and, uh, and also kind of some characteristics about cult leadership, but I'm not sure where you want to start. Well, I mean, so I think first, maybe we can talk about that, but I, I, I think that I just want to mention mm-hmm. the documentary Wild Wild Country and yeah, what it's let's, about. Let's start with the source material. Because I think people are far less familiar with that than they are most people. At least, at least if you live in the Los Angeles area, mm-hmm. you know who Bikram is and that he was, you know, a a yogi. Yes, he was a very famous yogi. Who, um, yeah, where then there's a lot of I, I believe there's still Bikram classes out here. It's yes, it's very absolutely. very very. Very hot yoga that, um, cause there's hot yoga also, which is very different, but Bikram actually consists of 26 different positions that are incredibly painful. And so, um, that with the heat, um, it's a very, very difficult class. I have so. personally done a lot, a lot of Bikram yoga. Yeah. So I, I enjoyed it very much. I am going to separate him from the yoga. I've done hot yoga. Um, which is also hard. And I think it incorporates some of the, there's, there's my first mic hit. Um, it's, it's incorporates some of those poses, but it's not a, it wasn't a strict Bikram class. Okay. So wild, wild country is a six part documentary series on Netflix about the Rajnashi cult led by Bhagwan Sri. Rajneesh, um, a spiritual teacher and guru. So he establishes a religious community um, in the city of Rajneeshpuram, which ends up being in in Antelope, Oregon in the 1980s. So it starts in India and it starts with Rajneesh getting a lot of um, followers who are the only people who know about him live in India and he starts to develop this, what we now know as a cult, but um, the way that it was framed and we're going to talk about this too, is it was framed in a way that he wanted to build this utopian society where people shared everything, Mm -hmm. right? So it was about peace. It was about unity. It was about, you know, it was about communal, but it was also about, um, crossing boundaries that would have otherwise been looked as taboo, such as, how do I say this? Such as getting in touch with someone's sexuality to, in a way that was removing the shame from it. And especially in the seventies and eighties, this was a really big deal. Um, but what it did in the process was it, it stripped people of their free will because they bought into this idea that this community was really the next way of the world. 
So when they essentially got pushed out of India, they landed in Oregon and started to build this commune. Um, and Rajneesh had ended up appointing this woman. Um, her last name is, we'll just make it easy, Sheila, who ends up being his right-hand man and really ends up becoming his speaker and his voice. And he's sort of like Oz. You know, he comes out every now and then. People come to these huge, like, uh, <laughs> conventions every year, and he yeah. comes out and... They're all like he's this god, mm -hmm. but it was really a guru. he was a guru. <laughs> yep. However, as this continues, mm -hmm. as this cult continues, um, we start to see that what they're trying to do is essentially tell the people of Oregon, you know, you're you're segregist, you're racist, you're all this stuff. We're look at we're helping the homeless, we're bringing people together. But on the side, they start to do really re really dangerous stuff that involves um, people dying. Mm -hmm. um and yeah, nuclear warfare things like that so it ends up being a sex cult mm. that um where people move from their homes with their children and everything and they end up living in these communes and they showed video footage of Ugh. some of the sexual stuff is really bizarre like almost like they're purging themselves in this humongous orgy and then they're all yelling and spitting fire and oh then it gets gosh. really quiet and then they're kind of passed out it's very, very bizarre and somewhat disturbing to watch. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of smoke and mirrors and perception around it. All the while, sleight of hand, they're working this whole other thing. Um, the way that it ends is he ends up, I'm, I'm really fast forwarding through this. Yeah. But um, he teaches them to sort of reject, to not reject the primal urges. Um, he says, you know, we're spiritual without rejection. So we're still spiritual, but we are accepting all parts of ourselves. Like live in the id kind of thing? So live in the id. Okay. Mm -hmm. right. um, but these people are surrendering their free will in it because they really are uh, going by only by his doctrine. So in the end, he's found guilty and he has to leave the states and and has to spend the rest of his life in india and he ends up i think dying in 1990 i believe mm. uh i really fast forwarded through that but he, it's it's really i i only made it through about four of the six episodes i think mm -hmm. it was or like half of it and it gets it gets to the point where i'm like i don't know if i can watch any more of this it's so bizarre okay that's why that's what kind of turned you off is that it gets sort of what, what's bizarre about it? Well, it starts off almost like, what? what is wrong? I mean, these guys are doing really good stuff. Wow, like, I can yeah. see what, and they interview a lot of people who were in the cult at that time and now are, you know, in their 60s and 70s. And you can still see how they are connected and still believe in what he was doing and what Sheila was doing. But then it starts to get, you know, once you start hearing about, the town that they're in and people are dying of salmonella and you start to see all of the corruption kind of weed in and, and the manipulation because Sheila's the one who's going to these board meetings and, and basically trying to change this legislation and completely manipulating things. And they interviewed her for the documentary too, as you know, as she is now and how they're all still very convinced in this amount of group think that this was really the best thing that could have ever happened. And that, you know, the American system basically ruined it for them. Yeah. I, I mean, two things that I think about when you say that is one, it just, it, it tells me that the documentary makers uh, created a really great narrative. They really did. They were trying to take you on an arc, right? Mm -hmm. Like on a, like pull you in, like you're a cult member, mm -hmm. like, these, this is good stuff, da da da, and then kind of take you on that journey. Which Exposes I know you haven't finished that, it yet, but yeah, maybe national that, scandal. Yeah, 
just tells me that maybe there is an arc there. And if you watched the rest, maybe mm-hmm. there would be a, you know, maybe it would pay off for you. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. It, and it also sounds like every... Um, this is, sorry, it says here, it says, it was one of free love, joy, happiness, and a little mass poisoning for the neighbor folk. Oh, Lord. Yeah. It's, so what the hell is that, man? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, David Koresh, Jim Jones, you know, Bikram, Manson. It's, I remember it, David Koresh. Yeah. I remember when that uh, happened. It's very reminiscent of the guru turned cult leader. Yeah. Right? It's got all of those feels to it, too. I watched uh, most of the Bikram. Bikram. Oh. Uh, that was hard for me to watch. I it wasn't as hard for me because I had I had listened to, yeah. to that podcast, so I I know the story. But the he's great, awful. Yeah, he is. And the the really interesting thing about the uh, Netflix series that you obviously don't get in the Thirty for Thirty podcast that I listened to was that they had all of this archival footage that was taken by members, mm-hmm. and so you were able to see what. You know, that's mm-hmm. just an interesting, um, I don't know if it would be as successful if you didn't have all that archival footage mm-hmm. of him and them and everything that was going on and all of their personal photos. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, that was fascinating. But. Yeah, the, I found the it was disturbing. It was only an hour and a half long. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you don't get all of it. I, I would really suggest the podcast if anybody is more interested in knowing the, the minutia of the story. To me, it was just, it was more of that whole sexual predator type megalomaniac kind of thing. Yeah, we, uh, yeah, I, I, I do find that we are getting, um, you and I in particular, I think because we talk about it so much on the show and then also in our work, I think we're getting a little fatigue with this particular psychology. <laughs> yeah, and the whole, the grooming that happens with yeah. him too. I think one of the bigger differences between the, wild wild country and the Bikram thing is that Bikram's approach was actually to pretend he was teaching them free will but he wasn't he was actually um, completely breaking down their psyche and then how he befriends some of these women makes them feel special seduces them then they're confused they feel guilt and shame and then their sadness and despair and then all of the followers of him, students of him, of his, who look at these women and go, well, you didn't have to be in his hotel room. It goes all, it's the same shit. It's the same Weinstein stuff, Bill Cosby oh, he's stuff. Weinstein it's, for sure. It's all the stuff. Um, it's all of these men and we hear it over and over and over and over again. And so that's what I kind of meant about, we, t- we, we come up against this in our conversations a lot and I, and I understand your like sigh and wanting to stop watching it and like that emotional reaction to it because I think you and I are getting a, a little bit of battle fatigue with it. And after doing a six part Manson series um, was when it started for me. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we've talked about leaving Neverland. We talked about a lot of different things and, and there is, we can't stop talking about it because it's, it's in our, it's in our culture and it's important to keep talking about it, but it does drain. There, there's a piece of this, though, that I want to add that's a little bit different with these two. Okay. Which is, there is this whole movement. There ha- I mean, it's not new. I would say it goes back to the 60s and 70s, but I think it's renewed itself in the last decade or so, where... I'm going to try to say this and not be judgmental. It's going to be hard. 
I think you're owning the judgmental part okay. of it. If, if you're being judgmental, that's all there is. That's fine. Americans are really wooed by this spirituality from India. Yeah. And so I think that when you watch this, there's this assumption that because they are Indian and potentially somehow closer to God because of their spiritual belief system. And there's also this, people are very anti-Christian or anti-whatever American, and I don't even affiliate to a religion. So there's nothing, I have no agenda in this. I'm just saying we can Mm overcorrect when we reject what we grow up with. Mm-hmm. And then we hook onto something that we kind of loosely know about because, you know, Madonna had all that shit going mm-hmm. on in the nineties and in 2000 where, yeah, all, I know. okay. And so we read a few lines and then all of a sudden we're Buddhists or we read a few lines and now all of a sudden we're these spiritual gurus or we're really attracted to India. And I love India, by the way, this has nothing at all to do with one is bad and one is good. It has more to do with the person and not, and just buying into something because they're rejecting what they were raised with. So there's this idea that because these two men are Indian and these, these American people are, are just, just kind of blindly follow this new scripture, this new doctrine. I don't know. Yeah. I think that's, uh, I think it's a a part of it, the cultural piece of that. I mean, what I what I thought of when you were I was listening to you was that as a culture, uh, I'm going to make it an extremely broad statement, but I think I hope people would understand that as a culture we are extremely narcissistic, mm-hmm. and so I think it's why we might be drawn to you know criminals and criminal pathology and and all of that is that we're we're trying to figure it out, and so if we as a culture as an American culture have a narcissistic trait, let's say let's go that far. And narcissists are have very low self-esteem. Mm-hmm. You might not, one might not know that <laughs> because they're not going to let they you know that. They certainly don't demonstrate it they don't outwardly. Dem- they don't demonstrate it in a depressive way yeah. or what we think of as, as a depressive, depressive way. Yeah. Um, but so because those with low self-esteem, what we know about the psychology of cults is that people with low self-esteem are more apt to be persuaded to be in a cult. And so when you were talking about sort of the overarching culture, yeah. and that's not you and me individually, if we're more susceptible to um, things that uh, give the appearance of we're going to have more self-esteem, mm-hmm. we're going to go towards that. And mm-hmm. that just that just kind of makes sense to me psychologically. But I mean, I also happen to know that women are more susceptible to join cults than Absolutely. Men. And I don't know. And I've, I've, I mean, I know you have, and I have as well. We've met spiritual narcissists and people who, yes. you know, are yogis and they talk about the growth of the self and half of them don't even have a self. Right. Um, so I think there's a lot of it in that world and it happens to come from Southeast Asia or Indian culture. So this is, I just want to make sure I'm being clear here. This has nothing to do with India. It has to actually do with the Americans' interpretation of things. And um, it drives me nuts sometimes. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to note, I think. And I do too, yoga. Yeah. Oh, no, I love. Well, I even said I, yeah. I enjoy Bikram yoga yeah. a lot. And I think that's part of the draw is that um, cults also, when when you're in that type of situation, you can often be uh, love bombed. I saw in a, one article, you know, Cults will love bomb you right mm-hmm. away. Yeah. They give you all of the family love that you ever thought you wanted and needed. And so 
there's a real deep pathology in that. Like we all sort of want that. And if you have any kind of self-esteem issue or you have a family that wasn't there for you, which a lot of people do, that's going to be something that you just primitively for sure want. I think the other piece too is because there were so many um, with Bikram specifically talking about the, the insecurity of, people who often will join these sorts of cults too. Bikram almost skipped right to the devaluation. And so because he was so known, even though he lied about half of his credentials, he was so known for what he did and people respected him that they allowed him to come in and say, you know, hide your fat fucking belly. I don't want to see it. And you're disgusting. You're this. And they were like, ha, ah, well, it's coming from a guru. So it must mean something. Or I mean, they talk about it as being, they were then motivated to yes. lose weight. So or- imagine like, anyone else said that to you. Yeah. It's like someone you really deeply respect, but you're in this womb type of situation. You know, the other thing that's interesting is they have found their analysts and psychology, um, psychologists out there that have studied, you know, um, have treated um, many, many, many cult survivors, let's put it that way, former cult members, and they talk about how they're often, I guess there's a predominance of people who have rejected religion. Yes. That get into well, I have these situations. Here. It's funny you say that. Hold on, I wrote it down here somewhere. They're like intelligent young people. Many of them are intelligent young people that grew up in sheltered environments, and then they they reject the religion that they were brought up in, you know? Yeah. Um, if I can find it, I have it on. Oh, here it is. Where um, it says cult submission talks about well, you're, I know you're going to get into this more as some of the, the characteristics, but they cross biblical boundaries. It seeks to destroy any sort of um, religion, sexual purity, personal ownership. It's almost the opposite of what you might be taught in religion. Yeah. But it's sensationalized. Absolutely. Yeah, it's crazy, right? And it's a religion of its own, which is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, uh, most people who are attracted to cults in, are looking for absolute answers. Mm-hmm. And religion, should you choose to accept the faith system at whatever literal level, uh, it's it's delivering absolute answers. Mm-hmm. Whatever your religion is... There's a book associated with it, and it tells you what to do and how mm-hmm. to do it and what not to do and what's going to happen after you die. Mm-hmm. It's like our fear of death really drives that. Oh, my God. And like, just who the wants need- to think it's just a black abyss, right? Well, and also just to not accept the unknown. Oh, absolutely. No. And it puts it puts structure to the chaos. And it gives you an answer for everything. Yeah, one thing I was reading was, yeah, exactly. That's the human, like our human desire for absolute answers. Yeah. It's like it gives you answers. And how many times in our treatment rooms have people come in and said, like, tell me what to do or Well, I why? mean that, but I also, sorry to interrupt, but I also mean the people who, for example, if you say, um, I'm just going to use a, a personal example. If I said, oh, I'm gay and someone, I can tell you why that's wrong because it says this. They don't go off of their... If it's set there, then they don't have to say they've created that belief or something about them doesn't necessarily accept me. It's, well, it's written here. I didn't choose that. That's just the word. Yeah. So it gives them even that. Permission. Permission. And then also a lack of responsibility Mm -hmm. to own how they truly feel. Yeah. I mean, a lot of my clients and over the years have want, want to have a desire or a deep desire to 
externally blame and absolve themselves of personal responsibility. Absolutely. It's one of the draws to being a submissive, actually, mm-hmm. in, in play in the BDSM world, mm-hmm. which I, I think is a, a, a wonderful way, if you're doing it consensually, to act out those, mm-hmm. those psychological constructs. Is, um, and people who are into that, I respect you because there isn't a human desire to submit to someone else having the black and white answers so that you can just go forward mm-hmm. and do X, Y, Z. I also think cults give this illusion of comfort, you know, absolutely love like this is a family. Com- like you were saying, yeah, it's a, tr- it's very attractive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's very attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, so after the break, we're going to obviously talk more about what we're talking about, but we're also going to talk a little bit about, the qualities of gurus, which I know we have addressed in other episodes, but maybe we could do it in the context of these documentaries. Sure. All right. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. While we take a break, go follow us on Instagram at Terror Talk Podcast, Twitter at Talk Terror, or on our Facebook page, Halloween All Year Long. If you prefer email, it's terrortalkpodcast at gmail.com. So reach out. If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, or check out our Patreon page. We upload new episodes every Wednesday and Friday. Keep coming back, but first, stick around for more of our show. Hi there, this is Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. We are back. We are talking about cult leaders. We are back. We left off, we were talking a little bit about the, um, sorry guys, I'm, I'm, there we go. My mic. It's always my mic. I can hear you now. Um, we were talking a little bit about the submissive piece you were bringing up oh, before sure. the break. And I just wanted to say that when we look at, and I know you're about to go into this more, we look at the cult um, submission that's expected and really just, is implicit and how it leads to exploitation. There's two things that, well, there's a lot that happens, but two things that stand out to me, which coincide with the cycle of abuse, which is when that trauma bonding, which we've talked about before Stockholm syndrome starts to develop, then the, the individual, not the leader, but one of the members, they will ignore their instincts. Um, and they will also, um, give up any they'll oppose any critical thinking so essentially they lose their themselves the self which we've talked a lot about when we've talked about emotional abuse and trauma bonding and in physical the cycle of abuse so it it's abusive i guess is what i'm saying (laughs) (laughs) to put a fine point on it yeah i think that might actually play into what we were talking about before with um low Mm self-esteem because if you if you don't have a strong sense of your own, uh, you know, self, inner, inner strength, inner self, good, good, grounded, you know, the type of person that can say, you know, I understand how you, how it, you see it that way, but I see it this way. You know, that's not everybody's jam. Like a lot of people go with the crowd. Like they don't have a self unless they're in relationship to others. Right. And then they just borrow all of that. And that's not necessarily malignant. I mean, I see that in people I know all Mm -hmm. the time Mm -hmm. where they, you know, it's not that you have to be oppositional all the time. It's just that it's critical thinking. It's like, oh, 
huh no i can i can see how um i don't come at it quite that way i mean we do that on the show all the time like oh i hear what you're saying and and i would add to that or i feel like you know just that adding something to the conversation yeah they're more susceptible to that group think right and so that low self-esteem obviously right Mm -hmm. like and, and so easier it's a it's a shorter road to borrow a self that seems powerful and Mm-hmm. smart and full of love right in the beginning but also very critical of you mm-hmm. which is that intermittent um reward system mm-hmm. that we see so often yeah i can see that that push pull mm-hmm. there's lots of i mean cult leaders are masters in mind control so it's not like i mean they might be doing it organically and instinctually and not everything they say is plotted out but a lot of it I think is is going towards a goal. So, you know, they convince their victims to, like Kathy was saying, they conv- convince a lot of people to separate themselves from others, from society, from their personal possessions, from money, from friends, from family. I mean, that's one of the big things we've always talked about is that isolation, you mm-hmm. know, in almost everybody we've ever um, dissected, I guess, psychologically speaking, is there's a piece of them that it has the the gift of um, getting you to abandon all of the things that you thought you believed yeah, <laughs> and moving into what they believe mm-hmm. and they convince, you know, they just, they convince you to buy whatever they're selling, which is a, um, is a trait that can be used for good. Sure. <laughs> um, often our politicians that we believe in have that gift. Um, so how do they gain control? over the cult leaders, you know, I think one of the things that we've started to talk about is the public humiliation, you know, they'll be like, I was saying like, they'll, they'll be showered with love right at their arrival. And then there's an addiction to that. And like you said, that love bombing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I read that somewhere. That's not my word, but, um, uh, they'll, you know, um, like sitting people in a chair and surrounding them. I'm remembering stories from the Manson um, Mm -hmm. reading that I did where, you know, telling, you know, having them surrounded by the whole cult and singing their name and um, doing all of that. But then all, so, so you give them all that love and you tell them how much they're a part of things. And then you sort of step back Mm -hmm. and say to the person, you know, let's, let's talk about what you, what you think and, you know, what are your base thoughts and what are your shortcomings and what are your recent failures and how do you need to, so it's like this, this, okay, oh, I feel so good. This is my community. These are my people. And then now I'm going to be drilled, you know, yep. about how I'm substandard, mm-hmm. you know? So the same people who are quote unquote loving you. Yeah. Um, those are the same people that are breaking you down and the people, the only people you allow to validate you. So it's like, and they do this too, right? They start to help you. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sorry. I have it on here. They, uh, I mean, they're gaslighting you, obviously well, they're gaslighting you, but they, they, they force you to sort of dishonor your own family unit. So, and we saw this a lot with the Manson family. Yeah. Where they these- disparage. Yep, mm-hmm. you, you don't you don't need your parents. They don't know what it's like to be you. Blah 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 blah. Yeah, they don't they don't love you. Look what they did. Right, and he was a master at that. You know, yeah. taking these young, sometimes not so young, but definitely young women predominantly, but some men as well, and just um, 
convincing them that no one in their life has loved them as much as Manson has, um, which wasn't true, mm-hmm. obviously. Uh, one of the tactics of uh, Jim Do- Jim Jones, <clears throat> he's another one that's always been really fascinating to me, is um, self-incrimination. Um it, it requires the cult members to provide their leader with like written statements of individual fears and mistakes. Mm-hmm. So when you first enter into it, I guess he would make them write out a statement um, of all their fears and all the things they've ever done <sighs> wrong in their life. And you're just giving, it's like, <clears throat> I'm sure it was characterized. I haven't done research on Jones in a long time, but I'm sure it was characterized as letting it all out you know, let's, you know, uh, purge ourselves of all the bad things and then we will leave them behind and go towards the glory of mm-hmm. whatever, you know, salvation. Mm-hmm. That's and, right. Uh, but then he's just got all these written statements about their fears and mistakes and then he just manipulates Use the hell out of them. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And then pokes at them mm-hmm. the whole time in order to get people to be submissive. And we see that too with, um, in individual relationships with a narcissist, they're really good at pretending like, at the beginning of a relationship of any kind that re- they're really interested in you. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're really just trying to get to know what makes you break. Yeah. Because it, it it's the information for the public humiliation, Yep, which is what we started with like that. You know, they, they do these um, confessionals. Right. And yeah, in a dating situation, I mean, who doesn't want, you know, one of the biggest complaints on first dates is like, he didn't ask me anything about myself or she didn't seem interested at all in my work. Or they're or, all very attentive. Yeah. Or, you know, but no, they're going to ask you everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's going to be all about you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I know that's rough because that can feel really good. Mm-hmm. Um, also, they're brainwashing. So that's, you know, they repeat various lies and distortions over and over and over again, and then they publicly humiliate you and also give you love or even make love to you. So it brings in the body and the sexual memory and giving you pleasure and then publicly humiliate you and then shame you individually with this information that they have that you don't necessarily remember Mm -hmm. that you gave them because cult members often don't have any idea that they're actually in a cult Mm -hmm. (laughs) until much later. Um, And then they'll weave in lies and distortions of things like we were talking about with Manson where, you know, your family doesn't love you, that kind of stuff. And then you begin to be brainwashed. It's slow. It is. It's a slow. It's we a, talked about this on the human trafficking episode mm-hmm. too, where it could take months or years sometimes for people to be completely committed. It's to, a long game. It's a long game. Yeah, I mean, for Jim Jones to get his people to all kill himself, Good. kill themselves by drinking poison yeah. on an island or whatever. Yeah. It's a hell of a lot of work he did to yeah. make that happen. I mean, and and one of the things you know about Jones in the later days and Manson and I think everybody we've talked about, and you can weigh in if the Wild Wild Country or Bikram is in line with this, but they ultimately become extremely paranoid. And yes, they rely on paranoid tactics. They make tactics. Sorry. They make you paranoid. They convince you to be paranoid. They convince you that the group, your family, the government, um, whatever is the only place where you have safety. And then what I think happens too is they, they drink their own Kool-Aid. Oh yeah. They believe in their lies. They believe in their, what they preach because and when get, you, and then get paranoid. Right. Right. It's, <sighs> 
and then in and then like organically kill you you know commit a bunch of murders where you know you're going to die or commit mass suicide in order to fulfill their own paranoid fantasy that they now believe that's right and so when i was taught this actually takes me back to the wild wild country part yeah where um they end up turning all of this quote-unquote all the good that they were doing ends up in murder wiretapping voter fraud arson and mass salmonella poisoning and it's the more they have to defend, the more they end up defending themselves in front of like led um, in front of the courts and stuff. They're doing all of this stuff on the side. And I think part of it is they really believed and felt justified in what they were doing. Mm -hmm. So they buy into this idea that they're still doing the right thing. It's that cognitive dissonance. Right. Yep. And Bikram did the same thing when he goes on trial or when he's at his depot or whatever it is. Yeah. I think it's when he's on trial and they start asking him where he got the cars from the expensive cars from if he really doesn't have any money. And he starts to make up this entire story about how, because he healed Nixon and helped Jerry, you know, they're Jerry Brown's cars and he helped start this whole thing for them. And the jury started laughing because wow, it was so, bizarre. so it's, it, he, it was clearly so made up, but you could tell he believed his story. He thought it was still working. He thought that the kind of tactics he could use in the cult would work in that setting. That's right, because there was a part of him that had worked with Nixon in yoga and all that, and there was a part of him that did have a relation. So it was these partial truths that he ended up turning into this large, grandiose, fabricated joke that the court was was holding back their laugh. Yeah, I can see where, I mean, that's where the, there's always, <clears throat> in all these stories, because we don't have a few of them now, but in all the times that we talk about cult leaders or look into this again, I'm struck by every single time, and again, I haven't watched the, the the Wild Wild Country, but every single time there's a point at which the the guru or the cult leader starts to tries to extrapolate his power into a a place where he hasn't done the legwork, <laughs> where he hasn't manipulated them, where he hasn't, you know, they're not low self esteem. They they don't need, you know, they're not suscept as susceptible. And there's this, there's this point at which you see the disconnect because there's always the part where we're observing them or hearing about them or reading about them in the cult. And you start to say, I mean, I remember when I read Manson's, uh, you know, self-written book and I remember about halfway through thinking, well, this is, this is not so bad. <laughs> like mm -hmm. it's pretty interesting. Like mm -hmm. I can see why, I mean, his writing was very, very interesting and seductive and, and, wild and smart and and you wouldn't think that knowing his all about his childhood now but i remember thinking like oh okay i could see how i could see how people would get there mm -hmm. but if it was done in the context of during the trial when he was bizarre mm -hmm. later like no hell no no totally it, and because the mask eventually drops and they they can no longer hold this facade and when that starts to drop you really start to see how pathetic and ridiculous they are and then all of the lies that came out about Bikram that he was actually stealing the majority of what he did from his master and never gave him the credit for that came over to the states again mm -hmm. because Americans we are dumb and we will just believe it that he was this spiritual yogi guru, amazing, you know, <laughs> kid that came out of nowhere with, and it was actually taught to him. Mm -hmm. And 
People just believed it was his. Nobody ever questioned his credentials. And all of the Olympic athletic stuff that he had, I mean, it was ridiculous how many people were like, wow, and no one ever checked his credentials. And I think it was, on the documentary, it was someone who who either knew him or had worked with the same master who said, "Uh, no, (laughs) he didn't do any of that. He learned from this guy because I trained from this guy. Those are not his 26 positions. Right. So it was just, so then you start to, just like when you figure out someone is a sociopath or a narcissist and you catch them in some lies, then you start to go, wait a minute, uh-huh. what else was a big fucking lie? The whole thing. The whole thing. Because there's usually this this weaved in line of uh, concrete facts mm-hmm. that are weaved into all of the paranoia. Yep. And yeah, I think- what we were describing before, like when it just seems bizarre, it's sort of the narcissist has the narcissism has run its course. You know, mm-hmm. it's like it gets exposed mm-hmm. eventually, and sometimes it doesn't get exposed until someone has killed a bunch of people. Right. You know, I'm not saying that there's a preventative measure necessarily because there's always going to be people that are susceptible. Right. To this kind of situation, I actually <clears throat> recently read this article. Um, it's in the context of self psychology, which is was originally um, developed by Kohut. Mm. Heinz Kohut, self psychology. I studied that a lot back in school, and um, and it, it's about cult membership as a as a source of self cohesion, like mm-hmm. putting together the self. Because there's a ton of research on being a cult member, and they've been able to do a lot of, a psychiatrist in particular have been able to do a lot of research on people who have survived cults, and then like we study them, and we try to see the commonalities, and for many decades, it was very difficult to really pinpoint a psychopathology mm-hmm. of the cult members, and um, I'm not going to go in a detailed way into this, although maybe the next time we we will inevitably talk about cult leaders again, so... Maybe I'll go keep go keep delving into it as we go along. But self psychology sort of talks about how there are narcissistically vulnerable personalities. Mm-hmm. So um, some of us have parts of our personality, whether that's family of origin or just our personality structure, where we're we're just more susceptible to it. Mm-hmm. And to varying degrees. Right. You know, I I mean Which is which sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Quick, which is why I'm I, I hate the the general term of codependency mm-hmm. because it doesn't break down the how much of that comes from trauma, how much of that actually comes from other things, and it's not. It can be very victim blaming. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's there's there are ways that people. I, I like to look at if we're going to use that word, that it's a it's it can be a trait rather than I mean a, a state rather than a trait, which means it can change, versus the way that it's oftentimes talked about, which it's the static personality trait yeah and i i certainly don't see it that way i don't I mean, just mm-hmm. like i don't see addiction as a static right. personality but some people situation. will but believe some that. people do yes mm-hmm. and there's a disease philosophy around it as well mm-hmm. so um the other thing that the reading i was doing takes into consideration is the relevance to forensic psychiatry that that, mm. that some of this has you know um the forensic applications in this area and, you know, Kathy, please chime in on this. I know this is your area of expertise, but, you know, first of all, there's consulting with law enforcement agencies that are dealing with cult related crimes mm-hmm. and the hostages that are involved. That's certainly something that 
they need to be educated about. Mm-hmm. Um, evaluation of the victims of ritualistic abuse. That's also something that would be forensically mm-hmm. relevant in my understanding. Expert testimony regarding competency to stand trial and criminal responsibility, which mm-hmm. I think is actually a really interesting thing that's happened, is whole it was something that was very interesting in the manson case really because that's what he always maintained is like hey they acted on their own right and and ists are becoming much more incompetency to stand trial evaluations which um is a big part of our work as forensic psychologists is a really important piece i'm actually um if you if people listen to the shrink chat show this coming Friday. I'm going to talk about some of um, the, the legal psych stuff that's actually tied into this, where it talks Great. about how much do we bring emotion and cog- uh, um, incompetency into whether somebody's culpable or responsible for a crime. And I think that we oftentimes just assume that somebody mm-hmm. is in their right mind when they do this and they totally understand what they were what they're doing and what they're about to do when they go to court. And oftentimes that's not the case. Right. Uh, that actually leads into the fourth thing that I was going to mention. That's like part of the forensic applications mm-hmm. uh, of, of learning about self cohesion and cult membership mm-hmm. is that determining the capacity to give voluntary consent for cult membership, mm. you know, so there's actually a, a useful, it's really interesting forensic application to determine was this person competent to give their consent or was they, or, you know, as a cult member or were they not competent? To well, give let's their go consent? back to Manson for a second and Absolutely. those young girls, mm-hmm. right? So you're looking at that. I think it's so interesting how the law will oftentimes pick and choose. I'm working on a case right now and my client is a 14 year old boy and the court is trying to make this argument that he isn't you know, he's not old enough to make certain decisions. I'm like, well, first of all, in the state of California, he only really has to be 12. And he is certainly emotionally and mature enough to do that. And so, but then we look at the Manson girls who were some of them, maybe 16 and they're going, no, they totally knew they, they, so it's like they kind of pick and choose when someone is ready for that type of responsibility in making decisions like that. Yeah, and I think there are forensic psychiatrists that that do or should have expertises or psychologists expertise in determining competency for consent. Yep. Giving consent. Yep. It's so, very specific. That's really interesting. Um, it's kind of also that uh, f- forensically speaking, I guess, the de- the degree of conviction with which the group, the group adheres to its beliefs must be determined during negotiations. So there's lots of um, forensic psychs, either psychiatrists or psychologists, that will go into the field and work with negotiators and attempt to help uh, police and agents, like in the Waco, Mm -hmm. Texas situation. Now, I mean, my understanding is that, and I'm not an expert in this at all, but my understanding is that with Waco they used some things that didn't exactly work. Mm -hmm. They sort of, um, they have to understand, I guess, that what kind of group membership it is, how closely they're tied to the group membership, and if they would be more likely or unlikely to surrender in those situations, Mm. Um, which, you know, the psychological warfare that I think they used in Waco where they tried to use tactics that were designed to fragment the group and Mm -hmm. disrupt them and get them against each other Mm -hmm. actually 
backfired and made them come together more. Right. And so like in the forensic uh, study of what they did right and did wrong, that was a piece of it. Like yeah. we, we misjudged. We were trying to separate them, mm -hmm. kind of like you do in a, a police precinct, you know, mm -hmm. on TV. Like we see that a lot mm -hmm. where they're trying to separate and conquer. Often that's where the false confessions and the different things we've looked at come in. Um, I guess they tried to do some semblance of that. Again, I don't have the details, but that it backfired and mm. they actually kind of came together even more. Okay. Um, I don't know. It's a. I feel like cult leadership and cults and gurus and all of that it, and, and the narcissism that plays into that is a topic that we re revisit so regularly because so many of the people we talk about. Yeah, and I think that cults are more common than people think because we think of cults like the ones that we now know are cults because mm -hmm. they've been discovered, but there's there are plenty of cults that are happening right now hiding in plain sight. Mm -hmm. that are organized and called different things. But if you really look in it, it's a cult. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what I was saying. I think, uh, I don't think I I've read, I know that in the research it says, you know, most people don't really realize they're in a cult until that's right. Much later when yeah. it starts to get bizarre, like you were saying, like they start to pick apart the lie or something and mm -hmm. they're like, huh, that mm -hmm. doesn't quite. And then they get ostracized <laughs> if they want out. Yeah. Or sounds, threatened. Sound familiar? Yeah, yeah. We have some religious sects in our world right now that have yeah. that issue. Yeah. I was, uh, there was one more thing I wanted to mention. Um, so forensic psychiatrists and psychologists in this particular part of the field, they're, you know, what we were talking about before rendering an opinion regarding an individual's capacity to join the cult voluntarily, or if it was involuntary, I guess there was this case which I definitely want to do more reading about, but it was uh, Peterson versus Sorlian, I guess. Mm -hmm. Sorry for the pronunciation. In which the parents of a young, this will you'll know a lot about this, or it'll seem familiar. The parents of a young child cult member forced her to leave the cult and enter a deprogramming treatment. Mm. Okay. The cult member eventually rejoined the group and sued her parents and the deprogrammers for unlawful imprisonment. So, so this person, this young adult was saying that she wasn't being held against her will by the cult. It was her parents, actually, that provided un unlawful imprisonment because she didn't want to be there being deprogrammed, right? So the court ruled that the cult member had been subjected to indoctrination predicated on a strategy of coercive persuasion that undermines informed consent, so there's a lot to unpack here, but I'm just going to wow. finish the story. We're not going to unpack it all today, obviously, but I wanted to throw this in there. And they found that no unlawful imprisonment occurred as the result of the parent's action. Mm. So um, it's in cases like this that, you know, a thorough appreciation, I think, <laughs> of the role played by the cult in the personality cohesion, because that's what this uh, research is kind of about, is about cult membership as mm -hmm. self-cohesion. Um and the need for cult membership as a source of self-cohesion increases the individual's capacity to make well-informed voluntary decisions about membership decreases. So, mm. uh, yeah, it was this really interesting. Pretty loaded. Yeah, it's really, it's, yeah. It's this article I was reading called Cult Membership as a Source of Self-Cohesion. And then there's a colon and it says forensic implications. It was, a, it's an interesting one. Um, 
And obviously a specialization. So yeah, fine, fine, fine. We're going to come back and do our what the hell segment for the week. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be right back. Hi, everybody. We're back. This is our What the Hell segment. Kathy, you're going to go first, yes? Yeah. yeah, and it's really, really short, and it's pretty much all in the title, but I'll go into a little bit more detail. Okay. Man steals trout, peas everywhere. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's, okay. That's it. So this, and scene. So this is all that happened. It said, <laughs> sometimes you've just got to snack out on some trout, which is exactly what David Wiley was going to do when he started trying to steal trout by shoving it down his pants. When the police approached him, he started peeing all over the place and saying nothing he did mattered because his crimes were only misdemeanors. So, yeah, he just got caught. Okay. You know, cops show up and he just decides this is like, well, F this. I'm just going to pee all over the place because guess what? It's only a misdemeanor. So he stole fish. Yeah. And imagine the combination of trout and piss. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's just like... Well, if he was in the cop car when that happened, I, f- I feel for the police officer that now has a deep, deep cleaning situation. Yeah. And when Fishing. the police approached him, I wonder if it was like at a, like almost like a fisherman's war, like he was outside or something, you know, and then stealing just fish, putting him down his pants. Yeah. I, I'm stuck on that. I can't even get to the peeing part. And how disgusting. And then he starts to just pee all over the place saying, I'm not doing anything wrong here. It's just, these are all misdemeanors. Oh, he sounds... It's like, it's like your, your one from last week where it's mm-hmm. like, why didn't you just stop at the carjacking? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why didn't you stop at just stealing the fish? Then, you know, then like, you're peeing in public. You probably whipped it out. There's other things now happening that didn't need to happen. I feel like there's um, a compromised mental health you situation think? going. I think yeah. he was right in his mind. I think... Uh, <laughs> I think he was just upset. I think he was having an issue. Yeah. Well... But, all right. Yeah. Thank you. You're fish, welcome. fish and urine. fish and piss, fish and urine. It's I like a, it. instead of fish and chips. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. A little salt. Okay, so here's mine. Um, the title of the article is "Well, this turned into a complete wreck." <laughs> I love these, <laughs> and this is actually from just uh, a little while ago in early January. I was I was trying to be contemporary with them because I know I had done some really old ones lately. So. So a woman goes into uh, a local grocery store and loads her cart up with food and goods. She goes right by the checkout, just strolls right by and straight out of the store. She begins to load up these food items into her car, which are now obviously stolen. And right before she finishes loading everything into her car, the manager and the security guard go out to confront her. Uh, they, she sees them coming. And the lady abandons what's left of her cart and she dives into the driver's seat and starts up the vehicle. Uh, Seeing that she's about to flee, this uh, whippersnapper of a security guard (laughs) yanks her back door open and jumps inside, which was not the best decision, I don't think. But okay, (laughs) he was all... He got excited. Yeah, clearly. The lady peels out of the parking lot, hitting the manager with her bumper, but oh, she doesn't God. she doesn't do any damage. It was low speed. She hadn't gotten any traction going. Um, the security guard is still in her vehicle, 
makes demands that she stop the car or go back to the store, as we mm -hmm. would. However, according to the lady, he tries to wrestle control of the vehicle away from her, which I can see, but I don't know. The car darts down the road way out over the speed limit, um, you know, running lights, runs into oncoming traffic and is broadsided by a truck, sending the shoplifter and the security guard careening in the car into a concrete median. Oh, my God. And the vehicle's completely smashed. <laughs> so the guard is ricocheted all around in the back seat. <laughs> And knocked unconscious oh my God. with a bleeding head injury. He winds up being life flighted out of the car. <sighs> a witness to the crash and the truck driver who hit them tell, you know, tell what, tell them what they saw of the accident. But the lady still maintains like this guy caused the accident because he was trying to wrestle control of the vehicle away from me. No culpability that none, you know, none. She's the one that created yeah, the whole no, scenario. None, none. It was his fault because yeah. he tried to like stop me from robbing the grocery store. Oh my God. Again, a very industrious security guard. The cops on the scene arrest her for abduction, but her lawyer is arguing that the security guard was at fault. <laughs> wow. That there's no abduction since he forced himself into the vehicle. Wow. And that he should be charged for assault himself while he's still unconscious at the hospital. So. It, it really did just get yeah. progressively well, worse. This turned into a complete wreck. Yeah. Physically, emotionally, <laughs> concretely. And then, and then you know what happened after that? What the happened? guy with the fish in his pants showed up and just started peeing everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and said, it's all about me. Yeah, it's, this is just a misdemeanor. <laughs> it's all about me and my pee and my Pistem fish. Pistemeanor. What's in my pants? Oh, it's my all God. about what's in my pants. Well. Oh, what the hell, man? What the hell? What the hell? Thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, yeah, we love it. Thank you so much. Uh, this is Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow.